The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, multi-tentacled god washed up on the Jersey Shore turns out not to be Cthulhu, but Cthulhu Kahanamoku, the old god of rad. Area surfer cult claims to have summoned the beast god by burning 100,000 ukuleles after a sacrificial virgin could not be located. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we talked to DJ Butler this time about his new fantasy adventure novel, In the Palace of Shadow. Enjoy. Dave Butler is known for his fantasy novels, especially the award-winning uh, Witchy Wars books. But this one, this one's science fiction. It's a really cool adventure tale in a far, far, far future world where the science is so advanced that it seems like magic. And um, humans have been transformed into thousands of varieties. It's got a lot of the wit and humor and the banter of Fritz Leiber's um, Fafford and the Grey Mouser series, or those old uh, Thieves' World anthologies, if you remember them. But it is also definitely science fiction, and Dave Butler is going to be here to tell us all about it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. I want to make a special announcement this time. There are um, a lot of changes going on in publishing and book selling at the moment, as you probably can imagine. The way the books get ordered by booksellers is also changing. Believe it or not, the number of reviews that a book gets on Amazon and other online retailers nowadays gets processed by some of these um, algorithms for ordering and go into determining whether the book, um, the next book of the author will be available uh, there. So it's a, it's a really a big help if you give your favorite author and favorite books some uh, good reviews on these uh, online retailer sites. You know the ones I mean. Here is some real actual joy for you. As I mentioned last week, we are trying out something in July, and we would love for you to take advantage of it. July is Independence Month at Bain eBooks, and nothing says independence like David Drake and the RCN series. This is an ebook sale and what we are offering is 28% off on the latest RCN novel to clear away the shadows. And the reason it's 28% off is because that lets us offer it for $2 off. Um, so that's the savings of $2 off on the ebook. Plus the entire backlist, all of the other RCN books is on sale for $1 off of each ebook. So that is $4.99 for the latest RCN book to clear away the shadows. And all the other RCN books, those great Leary and Mundy books, um, they are a dollar off for each ebook. The sale runs through July 31st all month long. Two bucks off on a $6.99 book is a pretty good deal, I think, especially because it's David Drake. 
And finally, there's a lot of ground we're covering this time, but uh, I don't want to forget to tell you about the July eARCs at Bay and eBooks. Now, an eARC is the path a chicken bone follows when it's halfway down your gullet, but you realize that it went down the wrong hole and you urge it upward, then either outward or back down the right pipe, but in either case, toward a glorified ending. No, 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 that's not what an eARC is. An eARC is an electronic advanced reader copy. So what these are is the galley version of a book. It's after the copy edit, but before the final proofreading, it's what the author gets to look over. And a lot of times we send these out as review copies to various uh, publications and, and such. And many years ago, we started offering the ebook version of these to readers. And so you can get these books sometimes uh, three months in advance or so. Your favorite series, your favorite author, you can get them as they come out slightly Slightly irregular in that all the typos aren't fixed, but um, they are available to you much earlier. Now in New York form is the Valkyrie Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. Time is running out. Agent Robert Kaminsky and the crew of the trans-temporal vehicle Clio have stumbled across a temporal implosion that claimed two whole universes, and neither Robert nor his crew can figure out what caused the calamity or how to stop its spread. Navigating the paradoxes of time can be a killer task, especially when dogged by those who seek your destruction at every turn. The crew of the Clio won't go down without a fight, however, no matter where or when the threat to the multiverse arises. The Valkyrie Protocol eARC by David Weber and Jacob Hollow is now available exclusively only at Bain.com and Bain eBooks, which is at Bain.com. So check it out. Want to welcome DJ Butler back to the podcast. Hey, Dave, how's it going? Good, Tony. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, let's talk a little bit about... DJ Butler, hold on just a minute, and I'll uh, maybe I'll screen share. This is our first attempt at this. Here's your website if anybody wants to look. Oh, I get uh, to be the experiment again. This is good. Yeah, um, DJ Dave Butler grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of law, he finally got serious and turned to his lifelong passion of storytelling. Excellent choice. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can with his family. He is the author of the Witchy War series with Bane Books, including Witchy Eye, Witchy Winter, Witchy Kingdom, and the upcoming Serpent Daughter. Let me show you some of those books um, with, with my newfound ability to have visuals. Who knew? That's that could be Let's see what we got. I'll... Oh, did I choose that again? Okay, let's try that. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing the Witchy Eye cover? I am. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there it is. There's Witchy Eye. Um, which I don't have the uh, Witchy Winter. There's Witchy Kingdom. These are beautiful covers um, by uh, Dan DeSantos, who is continuing to produce wonderful covers for uh, for a bunch of days books. Um, there's Serpent Daughter. That's going to be out in November. Um, that's a cool book. That is the, uh, Sarah is, um, Sarah is back in that one and she is queenly, very queenly in that and, and doing some magic. Yep. So, um, 
with Aaron Michael Ritchie, you also wrote The Cunning Man, um, which is this sort of Dust Bowl era. Um, Jim Mintz likes to say, uh, Dave, uh, 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 um, um, Jim Butler crossed, Jim Butcher crossed with, um, with John Steinbeck. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> which is pretty good. Uh, but they're mysteries also. And the upcoming The Jupiter Knife, which has uh, got a really cool cover, another DeSantos cover that's really, really good. You guys have really been, uh, have knocked it out of the park on getting these covers for me. Uh, Glenn, Glenn, no, Don, Don Mates, right? Am I saying Mates right? I've never actually heard Mates of it. did, uh, out now at Booksellers, is this one. Um, this is uh, called In the Palace of Shadow and Joy. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, this is a Mates cover. Yeah. And he's, you know, the guy that, uh, the guy that did uh, Captain Morgan and just, he was a, uh, he did the original cover on the Gene Wolfe uh, uh, um, books back in the uh, 80s. And just uh, he was just all over the 80s uh, with fantasy and science fiction covers. And uh, we, uh, you know, we don't, we don't get rid of the good guys. We keep using them. <laughs> so he's, he's like a, uh, an elder statesman in the art, arts community, in the uh, illustration community now and he did a great cover for this one um this is uh it's a far future planet art this is dave butler writing science fiction in the spirit of fritz Leiber, maybe um maybe jack vance's dying earth series yeah you have to tell me uh, maybe let's start talking about the i'm going to take these down now uh for the moment uh maybe let's start talking about the conception of these not of this novel um where did this weird and wonderful thing come from? Yeah. So first, a quick word about Don Mates. I actually was reading the Book of the New Sun with his covers when I heard from you guys he was doing a cover of this book. So I was, uh, I, I got very excited. And I've switched from Kraken to uh, Captain Morgan just so I can have his labels. Not that I'm a big rum drinker, but occasionally you put it in barbecue sauce or something. <laughs> um. So, so actually, uh, hey, Dave, wait, could you pull the, could you pull your phone down a little bit so that we see more of your face and less of the, there we go. Excellent. Thank you. A little further and you won't see my baldness at all. That's, that's really oh, good. No, no. <laughs> that's good. Uh, this, we should point out, this is a virtual background. We actually taped Dave inside. Uh, we put a, a, a video of him in a car just so that. Yeah. He could seem like a normal person where he actually is, is out on the sea somewhere, right? Or in prison. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Okay. So, so the, the setting started uh, actually as a concept for uh, getting a setting in which multiple writers could work together. That's, and it have, have, has not yet come to fruition. You know, we'll see what happens in the future. Um, and, uh, in, including in, uh, in, in gaming context, as well as in a writing context. Um, and, uh, there are, there are various sort of pieces, big, maybe even obvious pieces of inspiration for the setting. You get to the stories in a minute. Um, one of them is, uh, Sanctuary, Thieves World. Uh, which is a city, you know, uh, anthologies going back to the late 70s. I think the first one was 1979 or something, um, in which basically everybody's bad, you know. <laughs> you, 
<laughs> when you're when you're trying to figure out who to root for, it's the choice between like the slaver and the drug dealer and the pimp. You know, that's the three characters in the story. Uh, and uh, uh, so that I, I that's that's a piece of it. Another piece of it is Star Wars, actually. So uh, the um, I love Tolkien. I love Tolkien, without reservation. Um, there is an there is more Tolkien worship out there than I want to read. Uh, sort of slavish slavish imitations, right? Um, I think I've read enough books in my life in which there are elves and dwarves and something that approximates halflings, right? So uh, this is a setting that takes more of a Star Wars approach to species, which is to say there is an explosion, there's a proliferation. Um, in, in the books, it's proverbial. There are proverbial thousand races of man. Uh, and although the characters don't know it, the background of this is, the characters know none of the following here, right? Is, is that this is Earth. Uh, the only real specific hint, a couple of specific hints that this is Earth. One is that some names get passed down, including the name uh, Kish, which is the name of the sort of big decayed uh, post-imperial city, which is, a, which is a, an Earth name that is actually very ancient. We have like second millennium BC cities in the Middle East named Kish, right? This is, and, and also there's a little hint if you know, uh, there's a little little astronomical hints that like, oh, this is Earth with, with Earth astronomy. It's a far future Earth uh, following a gene war in which uh, humans were, uh, you know, uh, genetically altered to be various kinds of super soldiers and uh, super uh, uh, strategists and whatever. Um, and so, and so you, you see, it's like, it's like looking at the Mos Eisley Cantina, right? Luke and, and Obi-Wan walk into Mos Eisley and they don't see a bunch of farmers. They see a guy with a weird kind of pig snout face and the guy with a walrus face and the hammerhead shark head. And then there's Greedo, whatever he is, right? Um, I, it really has that feel. Also like every alien on Star Trek too, in a way. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You have sort of two or three big species uh, Star Trek may even be a better example because you you got you know Klingon, Romulan, Vulcan, and then and then later you get like Ferengi and a couple other additions, right? Um, so three or four sort of main, more common uh, varieties, and then lots and lots of one-offs. Like this guy shows up and he whatever, right? The green-skinned woman and the lizard guy. What's his name that Kirk famously fights in that awkward fight scene? Um, yeah anyway. it's from that uh it's from that great uh story arena yeah it, yeah yeah yeah. the grok or whatever it's named. yeah it's something um so so those are those are kind of the big um for the so i wanted a, a sort of a decadent uh setting with a lot of history and a lot of variety i mean uh, a it will not look like tolkien's world or feel like it hopefully um, again, I love Tolkien. This is not my bid to be like Tolkien. Um, and, uh, and B, from the point of view of shared settings, right, um, in, in, say, an anthology, if a writer wants to make up a species, go ahead, right? <laughs> go right ahead. All you can't do is make it super common. But there's plenty of room for, for small pocket 
intelligent species that we simply hadn't uh, focused on before because there are a thousand races of men. And in a gaming setting, you know, if you say, I want my character to be kind of a six-armed baboon with a fish head, cool. <laughs> you, you can do it. You, you come from some little pocket species in a valley somewhere across the ocean, so we, have, we don't see a lot of you, but you can be that guy. Well, the one thing that connects everything together is that ultimately somewhere there's a science fiction explanation. Yeah, that's right. And the characters perceive and talk about their setting as if it's, um, as if it's magical. But the, the only magic we see on screen is weird biology. Um, so I'll give you one example. And this, by the way, this, this uh, here's another sort of piece that went into the stew, right? There's always elements. Um, back in maybe 2012 or something, uh, a friend of mine who's, a, who's a, a biology professor gave lectures at a, a, the Life, the Universe, and Everything writing symposium about uh, evolution uh, in, uh, in science fiction settings, you know, some examples where it looks right, where it looks really weird, right? And, and that actually had been on my mind for a long time. So let me give you an example of, um, of uh, something that characters, one of them perceives as, as purely magical and the other one actually has the sort of a, a scientific, you wouldn't use that word, but there's an explanation for it that's not magical. Um, there's a species of, of frog warriors uh, and the females are big and they are valued for their, their, their danger sense. They're very hard to ambush. So they're very prized as sort of sentinels or, you know, they're not, they're not for infantry. They're for, for more sensitive work because, you know, they're thought to be able to, they're immune to ambush. Um, and, and then they have, uh, that's the female, they're big. And then there's a, there are smaller skinny ones that accompany them who are sort of uh, uncritically taken to be the males. Um, and so the epic poet character uh, has these uh, has these epic epithets he recites about you know their proverbial and he calls it their their mystical sense right their mystical perceptions. Well, it turns out it's not it at all. It turns out that uh, that the female carries around her mates who are males who are like the size of footballs attached to her back, so she has this sort of like nipple-like, uh, uh, I don't know what you call them, little, little anchors all over her back, and she's got all these males attached there, and then her body exudes, you know, a protective covering of slime. So what looks like just kind of a hunchback, actually, there's all these males there with their eyes, and when anything comes to surprise or attack them, you know, they react, which warns her that something is behind her, right? So who is the skinny one, the 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 uh, the the, the presumed male who follows them, them around, it's actually, uh, those are called thirds. Uh, and when a male uh, that, is, that is young enough to still have the ability to grow, it either fails to attach or falls off, it grows up into one of these thirds. And the, the female, these are called groconch, the female uh, don't have uh, vocal cords like most others, many other species of men, so they can't speak uh, 
they can't speak languages uh, that, that others can understand. But one of those males grows up to be a third. He's effectively neuter. His gonads are in his throat because that's how he's been attached to the female to fertilize her, okay? Those dry out and they, they function as vocal cords. So this, this third is this neuter sexless um, third sex that operates uh, as interpreters, right? So, um, so the book is full of this kind of stuff that's just sort of funky biology and fantastical biology, right? I'm not a biologist, um, but the, the characters perceive as magic. Yeah, I mean, well, I thought in your description, uh, which goes into some, some detail in the book as well of the of this species, I was thinking, Dave is trying to gross us out. It's <laughs> like describing the most disgusting species I can possibly imagine, but you know, it's kind of like, you know, some of these starfish mating, uh, a star right. uh, seahorse mating sort of uh, arrangements as well. It's not, it's, it's certainly not inconceivable in, in the animal kingdom. So that's cool. Well, well, tell us about our heroes and their particular uh, subspecies. We have, um, we have Indrajit Twang, um, who is... Uh, well, he's he's this guy, the fish-looking guy on this cover, um, yeah. maybe. Although he doesn't, he he comes from fishers, not fish, as he as he often tells Fix, the other uh, main character. Tell us about these two guys. So, so the other piece, so the inspiration for the stories, right? So there's there's inspiration for the stories, and that is, I've long, um, I was a fan, am a fan, but 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 when I was young, I was a fan of uh, Fritz Leiber's. Um, uh, Fawford and the Gray Mouser, right? Uh, and more recently, um, I uh, read the first three or four of Joe Lansdale's um, Hap and Leonard books. Uh, and uh, so those are those are some of the inspiration for the stories. Uh, the two main characters, um, they wouldn't use this word either, and it's not exactly right, but they're sort of intellectuals or they're they're thinking people, right? They're they're smart guys. Um, but they're both basically living lives of thugs and kind of borderline criminals. Um, Indrajit is the 427th recital thane of his people. His people are pre-literate or they're, they're, they're non-literate. They're an oral people, right? So we're talking about like the Homeric poets here, a people whose great uh, treasure is a literary epic, um, uh, but that is only that is only performed, performed orally. It's not written down, which, by the way, means it's not a fixed text, right? So Indrajit is the guy who has to know the story thoroughly and also have the uh, the poetic feet uh, at his command with facility, so he can recite and perform the story. I think he says it's fifty thousand lines. Um, uh, at one point in the story, um, and uh, and and his job is to 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 have that lore and perform it. His job is also to to add to it, um, and uh, w which entails sort of knowing the history of his grandfather's time, uh, and and com and you know committing that story to memory, and and uh, you know occasionally inventing new. Uh, epithets, uh, and also to pass it on. And here's the problem. Here's where we get to the problem because Indrajit's people are going extinct. 
they're they're reduced to one sort of small uh, valley, and when he left home, there were a few hundred of them. Uh, and and the reason he left home is because none of those people wanted to become the recital thing. And so he's in Kish, which is big, old, sprawling, decadent, former imperial capital, hoping, hey, maybe, you know, occasionally young people wander away. Maybe there's a, maybe there are people here, you know, scattered people of my, of my, uh, my race, my clan, or I can find some kind of cousin people, right? Uh, or otherwise some solution. Um, but, uh, but he hasn't. Uh, and to make a living, he's, uh, he's taken to doing kind of thug work, uh, at which he's not very good. Uh, and so as we start the story, he is in debt, uh, having uh, been doing uh, very badly uh, at, at collecting uh, debts for an insurance broker. Uh, again, that, that phrase does not occur, a risk merchant um, uh, of the paper suit. Well, he's, I mean, he's, he's good at a portion of it, um, as his partner is also good at a portion. I mean, he's good at the talking. Um, yes. And the, the other thing that's interesting about him is that, so, so he's the repository of this vast history of his people. And they are, um, and, and if he dies, that's it. I mean, that's going to go away. Because for two reasons, first of all, he, he thinks that, uh, and, and his partner says, well, why don't you write it down? But he can't for two reasons. One, he doesn't want to because it, it loses all the flavor. And the other reason is he's um, can't write, right? <laughs> can't read, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's one of my favorite. So there, to a high degree, the book is sort of a book of banter, right? And, uh, and I, I enjoy, I've got a friend who's a scholar of, of oral cultures. Uh, and it's really fun kind of thinking through um, you know, thinking about some of the stuff uh, he says uh, and thinking how it translates into a character, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, he's a talker. He is the bard, if you will, in sort of D&D character class terms, right? Um, illiterate, but, but as you say, not because he's stupid, not because he's uneducated. He's profoundly educated in a non-literate culture. In fact, he's kind of disdainful of people who can read. Yes, because <laughs> it weakens the memory, uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, and allows for more control. He make he makes that point, uh, and and he's not wrong, by the way. Like there, there's a, those are valid points. I don't think we're going back to a, an oral culture at any time. This is this is sort of a this is a a theme that I've touched a little bit on various things in my uh, various points in various books. Um, uh, this is a little bit of a digression, but I'm going to make it. it. I, it seems to me that there are some big mental gulfs between us and our ancestors. Um, and some of them are things like, you know, the Renaissance idea of a chain of being, which we don't have anything like that, or, or the simple fact of the night sky. Human beings up until just about yesterday all knew what was in the night sky. They had names for stuff. They knew how it moved. Uh, they could, you know, they could use it to navigate. Uh, sometimes people's used it to, to, to guide cultural navigations, right? We, when that star appears, we migrate to the winter place by following this constellation. Then in the spring, this other star appears and we go back, 
right? Uh, and a, to a large extent, many moderns don't see moon and the sun follow uh, effect. So, uh, so, so there's, drop there's, out there, Dave. For a second. The, Can you repeat what you just said with the, uh, the about the moon and the stars? Yeah, many moderns couldn't tell you simple facts about uh, the, you know, that the, the moon, the sun, and the zodiac all follow the same, you know, stay within the kind of 30 degree band and follow the same path through the sky. Some can, right? But that's knowledge you have to go out and deliberately seek now. Whereas that's something that was that was part of what everybody did. I think I think I think literacy has also created a gulf between us and our ancestors. Because again, literacy, as far as we know, right, is about 5,000 years old. And, and, and 5,000 years ago, it was pretty elite art. So like, you know, really widespread literacy is quite a bit less old days to think about the universe or to remember things. Right, things like Francis Yates' books on the art of the ancient arts of memory, um, and and the more of these gulfs that there are between us and our ancestors of a thousand years ago, or five thousand, or twenty thousand years ago, sort of the less we're the same species as them, and I I think that's very interesting, and I don't know that we always know what we're giving up, yeah. so. Kind of cultural uh, speciation in a way. That's right, because we're the product not just of our genes, right, um, but of but of our memes, uh, and uh, yeah. So that's so that's 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 a recurring Dave Butler theme, and that's kind of how it uh, kind of how it comes up uh, in this uh, in this book. So tell us about Fix, who is also a a product of a memory cult in a, in a way. Yes. <laughs> very different sort of fellow, but uh, this is sort of something that they both share. Yeah. So Fix is, uh, Fix is literate. Um, Fix is, uh, if you, if, so the word human doesn't, I, I don't believe, double check. Pretty sure I don't use the word human um, because these are all sort of humans. They're just, you know, post uh, current humanity. Uh, Fix, but Fix is a character you'd look at him and say, he's human. Um, Indrajit uh, is described as having a bony ridge nose and eyes on the side of his head so that Fix make, mocks fun of him for being a fish, right? It makes fun of him for being a fish and asks if he has gills and stuff. Um, uh, Fix looks human um, and, and he's sort of the predominant human type in, in Kish. Uh, and um, so uh, he was an orphan and he's raised in an ashrama, a monastery, uh, of the god Salish Bozar the White, the god of useless knowledge. Uh, and Salish Bozar's uh, adepts commit themselves to the uh, preservation um, of, of knowledge for knowledge's sake. So to become one of the selfless, the initiates are called trivials, but the priests are called the selfless. You have to, you have to demonstrate the the mastery of 10,000 useless pieces of information uh, over a multi-day debate uh, and sort of challenge procedure. And, and, and realize that's two things. You have to prove that you know 10,000 things. And you also have to prove that they are useless. 
um, that you've, that you've, in other words, for purely altruistic, for purely for the preservation of knowledge, you have mastered these. And so uh, the example that comes up is fixes um, uh, his, his preceptor, his master in the ashrama uh, had memorized uh, the content of a, of a series of books in a language no one could read. And he could reproduce any page, uh, all the squiggles, all the diacritical marks, every line forward and backwards, and no one has any idea what any of it means. Um, so uh, so Fix's, Fix's basic problem is that he fell in love. Um, and uh, and 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 couldn't uh, you know can't make a living, uh, can't do sort of ordinary life things with useless knowledge, and so he's uh, he uh, has turned himself to the acquisition of useful knowledge. Um, and uh, Fix is uh, illiterate. He's a sort of a relentless uh, self improver. Um, so uh, specifically, what he's done is he's he's gone and, and worked as a thug for the same risk merchant, um, the same insurance broker, and then surreptitiously begun learning the business. Uh, and so, uh, and once he was able, began uh, engaging in black market insurance operations because in insurance uh, risk contracts to be enforceable all have to be written down in the registry and the paper suit. You have to be a member of the guild, right? This is all over the world, all professions love to do this, exclude outsiders. You gotta, you gotta be in the guild and pay your dues. So he's a black marketeer. Um, and so when the story opens, the story is about these two guys get put on the same contract. Uh, and uh, the contract boils down to protecting, acting as bodyguard to an opera singer. Um, and uh, very, very quickly, uh, the opera singer is attacked and they end up on the run and then sort of more and more questions quickly arise about what exactly is the nature, what exactly is going on here and, and who really is the target and is it maybe Indrajit and Fix who are meant to be killed? Well, before we get, talk about uh, Ilsa without Peer and, 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 and the rest, you do spend quite a bit of time in the book describing how risk man the, the risk market works, um, the merchants work. Um, which I find kind of fascinating because there's like counters and it's like arbitrage and all this crazy stuff. Um, how, and they're trying to figure out who is working on a contract for them to fail and who to, to for them to succeed. Who some of the, there's various opposing like groups of thugs out there that are um, sort of go over that just for, for a little bit, because I thought it was, interesting and and that's sort of a fascinating trans and you're a lawyer so. yeah and i have some background with the capital markets and so indrajit is the point of view character and for him this stuff is not only new it's painful and so uh that allows me to sort of explain this stuff and yet also have him sort of some sympathy with the reader who's like wait a minute wait a minute what <laughs> um so uh, yeah, so uh, the um, so the risk merchant is a guy named Holypot Diafernes who has literally two faces, uh, one of which is under a veil, and uh, but you see like the veil lifts as he exhales, in hints of a face, um, and uh, he uh, he's we would say he's the reinsurer here. 
So somebody, someone has insured, and you know, it's not clear who initially. Uh, it's not initially clear who insured the life of this opera singer for seven nights, for seven days, and uh, and the uh, the risk merchant who took that contract, the person who wrote the insurance policy. Now, by the way, back to Star Wars. Where, where do the names come from in this story? Well, some of them are Indian, like the subcontinent of India. Uh, some of them come from uh, an anthology of Ugaritic texts. So I've got some some Ugaritic names. And then probably... Wait a half- minute. That would be a crestomancy of Ugaritic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, that is correct, Classical actually. Of, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, and a lot uh, of wordplay in the book. I mean, that's basically like half of the book is the fun with the wordplay. So yeah, um, and about half the names are pure, made up Star Wars like names, right? Um, so, uh, so the risk merchant who has the original contract is it turns out to be a woman named Frodolo Chut, and that's a pure Star Wars name. Um, uh, so. Uh, but then, then she reinsured some of the risk with with Holy Pot, um, and uh, in other words, uh, basically she's worried she's worried that she'll lose too much if if anyone makes a claim on the insurance policy. So she bought an insurance policy for herself. If I have to pay, you Holy Pot are going to pay me. Well, the result is we don't know who made the original bet insuring the singer's life. Uh, and we're not really sure about Chute's motives. We're not sure about Holy Pot's motives. We don't know uh, who would try and kill the singer, which happens in like chapter three, right? It happens very quickly. Um, and we don't know why there are, as you say, several different groups of thugs chasing around the city. Um, so, it's a, so it's a thriller. It, it looks like fantasy, but it's really sort of pseudo-fantasy, a science fiction sword and planet kind of uh, thriller about these two guys who are smart, but down and out over their heads, not sure whether they're the patsies or not. Um, one actually, so on the point of various groups of thugs, this is, this is I don't know, a, for me, one of the fun things about the setting. Um, I've said it's post-imperial and it's decadent, right? So, so what is Kish? It was, it's, was once the imperial capital, and upon the death of the last emperor, seven of the senior servants of the palace took control and keep order. The, emperor, the empire's gone, but at least in the city, we can keep it from going to hell. Uh, and their descendants are still in charge, using as uh, official titles the uh, serving positions of their ancestor. Right, so it's the, it's the Lord Chamberlain and it's the Lord Stargazer and it's the Lord Marshal, right? It's seven kind of uh, chief families. Well, in the city, the only permanent organ of government uh, is an auction house that auctions everything else the city does out to, to these families who in turn uh, turn around and auction out um, uh, or hire mercenaries uh, to do the work. And um, we they don't use the word mercenaries or don't use it very often. They call these jobbers, right? Jobbers. So you have jobber companies and individual jobbers. And the whole thing basically works like Roman tax farming because some of these tax, some of these tasks allow you to bring in revenue 
and and you pay the jobbers, you the royal family keep some, and and you paid for the right to have this contract, right? And then some of the contracts don't generate revenue, so you you you're bidding how much it will it will cost, how much you're willing to take to do the job, and the city pays you for that. And this is how the city funds itself. There's the periodic auctions, and it's all run by mercenaries. So, uh, so there are yeah. So there are several of them chasing these guys, and and then one one piece of recurring conversation of their banter throughout the book is, you know, I've kind of been alone. This sucks a little bit. Maybe we could have a maybe we could be a jobber company. What would that look like? Um, uh, so yeah. So so that's another piece of kind of the setting and the plot. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's part of it, because this is the origin story of what we assume might be, you know, many tales of, of um, Indrajit and, uh, and Fix, because they're, they've, they've been alone a lot, and they've, uh, you know, it's like they finally found somebody that's kind of compatible to, uh, to hang out with. They don't dislike each other, and um, they even uh, have a certain, certain sort of trust that develops. Um, so tell us about Ilsa, Ilsa without peer, um, who is the object of their, who, who they have to protect and, and keep from getting killed. That's the contract is on her. So there's, a, yeah, she's an opera singer um, without peer, right? She has a, a fabulous voice. And um, the minute we hear her name at the end of chapter two, the characters start sharing rumors that they've heard because no one knows anything really about her. Uh, it turns out that the reason that no one knows anything about her is the, that she is is sort of kept hidden for for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of the most obvious ones is actually she's pretty hideous um, by sort of any ordinary standard. She looks like this kind of flat-headed, uh, colorless, wrinkled toad with enormous eyes. Um, but she has a, just an earth-shattering voice. Um, including she has the ability to sway people. She has two, um, she has two voices, two vocal cords, and one of them sounds like, you know, grinding glass, uh, croak. Uh, and then the other one is, is mellifluous and beautiful. And when she sings in it, men, right, men in particular, uh, feel calm and feel uh, they, want to, uh, they want to obey her. Um, so this is a sort of a pheromonal, uh, again, kind of um, chemistry rather than being a magic power. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I don't want to say too much because sort of the mystery, mysteries around Ilsa ultimately get to the, uh, the plot of the book. But someone tries to kill her right about chapter four, three or four. Uh, and then the heroes are hiding her and uh, fleeing across the city and trying to solve the mysteries. Yeah. Well, try to, I mean, sort of sketch out the, um, you, you've said some of it. I mean, for instance, there's Orem Thrust, Thrush. Yeah. Um, there's uh, a couple other, uh, the Risk Merchants um, as well. And, and maybe uh, sketch out the, the and, and there's a great map in here too, by the way. Um, what what areas of the city might they uh, might they explore um, as as they I particularly like the 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 paper place the the, the Wall Street of <laughs> that's correct it's because there's a lot of literal 
stuff that that is figurative on Wall Street that that you that you put in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it was once more literal on Wall Street, right? But it's all become electronic and uh, data racing back and forth. Um, yeah, so the city's got distinct uh, quarters. Um, so, so is a like a, just kind of a process or historical note, right? So, so this setting I started working on probably in 2013, and what I really did was I bought myself a Moleskine notebook. And every day I wrote uh, both sides, front and back of one page, just world building stuff. And the first thing I did was draw the earliest version of that map. Now, uh, Brian McWhorter has done a much nicer version with sort of, you know, getting down to the blocks and the streets. I just sort of mapped it out in terms of the different, uh, the different quarters. Um, so the, uh, the crown is sort of, now the city is very old. Okay, so it is very, very old. And uh, there's, there's a word in the, in, uh, I think it might be an Arabic word, but that, is, that has been incorporated into sort of archaeological technical vocabulary, which is tell. And a tell is an artificial mound that is created by successive waves of human occupation. So you get a tell where there's a reason, like a good reason to live in a place, right? So um, it's at the mouth of a super fertile valley or it's at a really uh, productive spring, right? Or it's at an important strategic crossroads. And so you had the first city and the stone age and then the next, and then you have multiple layers. You read about the excavation of a place like Troy or Jericho, and they're cutting down through different layers of the mound. The mound is called a tell. Uh, Kish is a tell. Kish is built on a tell. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's heaped layers upon layers um, and this, by the way, goes back to my original conception of how fun would this be as a gaming setting, because you've got, you've got a city built over the top of multiple layers of dungeons, some of which are higher technology than the current residents uh, know how to use, uh, some of which may contain uh, species of man that are unknown because they're troglodytes or they only come out at night to eat children or whatever, right? So... Um, so uh, the crown is the highest uh, is, the, is the is the highest part of the tell. Um, this is occupied by the rich. It's occupied by the temples of the uh, city's uh, five uh, gods. Um, there there are proverbial ten thousand gods, but the city has sort of five big ones. It's got a makeshift pantheon of uh, of, of, uh, of five gods, um, a couple of parks. So we see, we see the crown um, quite a bit uh, because uh, this is where Orem Thrush lives, the Lord Chamberlain. This is, uh, it turns out to be the patron of uh, Ilsa Without Peer. And he, he uh, very early on is a candidate for, is this a guy who would ensure Ilsa's life and then try to kill her because he was done with her and wanted to at least get one last, uh, last payout? Or if not, is this a guy who will help us, um, you know, help help us give us resources to to try to figure out who the killer is? Uh, and Thrush is um, uh, not a nice guy. He's uh, he's he's got a sort of a he's got a shape changing uh, feature uh, where he 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 changes appearance to resemble people around him. 
So his, uh, his banner is a, a horned skull, uh, and he wears a horned skull mask in public. So people don't realize that this is what he's hiding is he doesn't have, no one knows what his face really is. Um, but he's also, he's pretty tyrannical. We, we meet him and he base the first thing he does is have his thugs beat the heroes to the floor to submission so he can, you know, get what he wants out of them. Um, so he lives there, uh, uh Moat Gannon. I've written Chuck Gannon into the story. Um, uh, I like Chuck very much as a person and a writer. Uh, and uh, he's uh, he's in the he's in the crown also. Uh, he's the he's the head of uh, of a famous jobber company. Uh, and and uh, and at one point he's uh, he's sort of seems to be involved. And so the the heroes go try and lay in wait to uh, ambush him. So uh, we see quite a bit of that. Um, the spill is a sort of long, wide neighborhood that goes down to the sea in the north. And this is, we see a lot of this too, because the paper souk is here. Uh, this is, there, there are basically two, so the city's on a, this, this hill, this artificial hill, surrounded by the sea, basically on three sides. So from the landward approach, there is a, uh, outside the walls, there's a commercial zone called the Caravanserai, and all the landward facing trade comes in here. So if you want to trade horses or spice uh, or whatever that comes by land, it's outside the city of the stout. But sea trade comes up through the spill, um, and there are also other kinds of uh, merchant activities there, like the, the paper soup. So we see, we see the spill. Uh, lawyers, banks are all clustered around the paper soup. So we see those two, uh, those two areas probably the most. Um, but we start out seeing uh, Indrajit getting beat up in a tavern in the West Flats. Uh, and uh, we visit a brothel in the Lee, which is kind of the upper middle class or middle class neighborhood on the south side of the city. Uh, and, uh, you know, we even go underground beneath the city's riddled with passages beneath the paper suit. The merchants have walled off a portion to domesticate it and allow there to be secret passages. So you can, you can go to the bank and back without getting robbed, right? Cause you go by secret passages everywhere. And so we, uh, we even see that uh, in, uh, in a couple of sequences. Yeah, you really create this setting that, that evokes a sense of wonder in that it's just so ancient and just so, it, it, it's almost like infinitely big and, and deep and intricate. Um, and it, it really comes across uh, and, and the, our characters, uh, are trying to navigate this this amazing world that they've you know they're the, at the end of of just thousands and thousands of years of human history and whether or not they realize it or or it's it's only tales to them still all this th stuff is there and it's starting to you know and and can erupt at any moment to uh <laughs> to endanger their lives so it's it's really cool stuff um so uh what are what are you working on now? Let's shift gears a moment and uh, talk about some some more Butler projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, so okay, so this is interesting. Um, uh, I I don't have an NDA, so I'm pretty sure I can say this. Uh, there's um, there's a, a game entrepreneur. I meet a lot of people, so I go to cons, I tour, I'm out there in social media, I meet a lot of people. 
Um, last November, I met this uh, game entrepreneur uh, who uh, it turns out is working with Lynn Abbey to reboot Thieves World as a game setting um, as well as getting new anthologies. Um, and I love the Thieves World books as a kid. When I was in seventh grade and eighth grade in New Jersey, uh, and we would go in the summer to the bookmobile, right? Uh, I checked out those first four anthologies over and over again. Uh, so, um, so I'm actually writing, uh, what I'm going to write now is working on the four episode or four scenario mini campaign to go in the fifth edition D and D game book that will be part of that Kickstarter. Um, which has been pretty fun. Um, so uh, for a couple of reasons. So uh, one, so the moment at which it is set is moment zero, right before the first anthology happens. And the idea is that the characters need to sort of get acquainted with Sanctuary and some of its main actors and politics and stuff. And then the campaign proper will begin when Prince Katakithis shows up with his hellhounds and we were in Thieves World 1, right? Um, so it's been fun to sort of think about how, how, how much of the themes of those books can I foreshadow? How, what characters can I interact with? Where can I, have, where can I have these players step into some of the referred to backstory of the short stories? That's been, that's been interesting. Um, also, funny, just funny note, uh, one of the owners of this game company I'm working with, Red in the Palace of Shadow and Joy, and said, this, is a, this, is a, this should be a Thieves' World adventure. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I said, great, you, you, that's correct, you found the inspiration. So... Um, there's that. The next thing I want to work on uh, is a, a sort of a science fiction novel set in an, um, an East India Company kind of setting. I've been reading a lot about 17th uh, and 18th century India uh, and this idea of a company that somewhat unintentionally, somewhat abusively, largely driven by the greed and ambition of of its individual employees, uh, basically starts acting like a state, uh, and uh, and this is ultimately how Britain, uh, how England, uh, sort of brings India into the empire is through the, the it, it did not intend, uh, but uh, it empowered this company to go have troops and collect taxes, and and uh, that's where we ended up. So that, but in space. Uh, and uh, stories about a, an accountant uh, whose uh, first job is a, uh, after school uh, is, is as a trader with this uh, company that owns, a, that, that doesn't, doesn't own, right, but owns uh, a, uh, a system. Uh, and he's, he's idealistic, and it's only when he gets there that he realizes after having committed, spent his savings, brought his, his wife and his two kids uh, to this planet, he realizes the company is corrupt uh, and the planet's very dangerous and uh, about him trying to sort of make his way and make a career and bring about reform um, all uh, with sort of a, all the deck stacked against him. Right. So that's my, I think, next book 
that I want to write. Um, we'll, we'll, I've got a working title, but I don't love it. Uh, so I won't even tell it to you. It doesn't matter. We'll, we'll see the title when it comes out, if ever. Yeah. Well, that sounds really cool. Uh, we should mention that there's a story associated with uh, In the Palace of Shadow and Joy. By the way, In the Palace of, the, the Palace of Shadow and Joy is the opera house, uh, which is itself kind of cool. Um, the way that opera works in this world. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, the cross between the globe and a, a real multimedia and, and like uh, that Terry Brooke, uh, that, that Terry Gilliam movie, uh, uh, Baron Munchausen popped into my mind while I was. The big scenery moving around the stage and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's very cool. Um, but the story, uh, what's the title again? I'm, I'm blanking, but it's, uh, uh wow. Shoot. Uh, I am also blanking. Look at here on my, uh, I've got it on my desktop. Uh, maybe I can find it. I don't have it popped up. Actually, it's going to, it's, it's going to be at Bain.com. Uh, as soon by the time this come, the is, is live. Um, it will be at bain.com. So, um, oh, I'm having a hard time finding it. I've written too many short stories. It's folders. <laughs> so I should, uh, let me, let me find the title since we're, is it sacrifices? It might be sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it or something. So what's about that stuff. story about in, in this one has Indrajit and fix Indrajit and fix, um, uh, after they've, they've teamed. Yeah. So, so one of the sort of basic challenges that they encounter and that they, they sort of highlight at the end of the book is, Hey, can we be good guys and do this? <laughs> or are we going to have to be bad guys? Cause they don't, neither one of them wants to be bad guys, right? One of them, one of them wants to be a poet and one of them wants to be a lover. Uh, and uh, so I've written, this is actually the third short story I've written. Uh, two of them are already out in, in a couple of anthologies from Chris Kennedy publishing um the 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 setup here uh, this is but, but that's one of the sort of themes of this short story uh is can can we do this and be good guys and the setup is uh that they're going uh there's there's an ambassador uh that is coming uh to uh, meet with Oram thrush who's um okay this is a little spoiler but he's basically their their boss their patron uh by the end of book one right they're working for him and uh and uh and and there's been a shipwreck uh and so the ambassador is is stranded on the coast somewhere and this is about them uh, uh trying to uh, rescue the ambassador and so we we see a little bit outside the uh, city of kish including we see the necropolis um which uh which at one point in the past was just part of the city which used to be much more cover much more horizontal space uh, and this part's been walled in uh, and sort of partly built over and partly dug under to be a burial ground. So these guys and the uh, ambassador they believe they have rescued uh, spend some time uh, crossing through that. But it's about kind of mistaken identity and about um, uh, about. Uh, you know, being willing to make a brutal sacrifice um, either of yourself or of someone else is sort of what that short story is about. Yeah. And that is at uh, Bain.com and it's, uh, it's available to read for free. So I give you a good taste of the, uh, of the world to uh, of in the palace of shadow and joy. 
So um, the book at Booksellers Everywhere is, I'll pop up on our screen. Those of you listening, I'm popping up the, uh, uh-oh, I, I, I closed it. <laughs> Here's the book. I'll show it to everyone. Uh, I'm holding it up now for those of you just listening to this. Um, I hate the podcast that, that do things and, and I'm listening to them. So, <laughs> so uh, this will be on YouTube for those uh, for, and, and elsewhere on the Bain channel there and elsewhere we'll put it up uh, for if you want to watch it. Uh, In the Palace of Shadow and Joy by DJ Butler. Um, really cool science fiction, mystery, end of world, planetary adventure, greatness. Um, and, and a lot of cool banter and a lot of humor in this one. So thanks so much, um, Dave, for uh, talking with us about it. Thanks. Thanks. Always great to be on the podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Task Group 47.3 sat motionless in space between the Prime Terminus and Jane Isotalo's battlecruisers, and evasion maneuvers from a base velocity of zero would be limited. Even with a Saginami Sea's maximum acceleration of 726.2 gravities, Klaus Fleming could have changed her position by no more than 587,000 kilometers and attained a velocity of only 2,890 kps. In the 6.8 minutes, Lessam had expected Task Force 1027's missiles to reach her. In the time he actually had, the best she could have managed was 277,000 kilometers and 1,980 kps. That was less than one light second, which was negligible against missiles coming in at 80% of light speed. On the other hand, Lessam couldn't have generated a much greater base velocity and stayed between Isotalo and the Terminus. Nor did he really need to, yet, at least. The cataphracts were much too far downrange for Rear Admiral Rosiak to control effectively. For over 60 T years, since the introduction of the laser head, effective missile engagements had been managed via the missile's telemetry links. In theory, it ought to have been simple for any missile to find something as glaringly obvious as an impeller-drive starship under power. In practice, things were a bit more complicated. It wasn't that missiles operating in autonomous mode couldn't find targets. It was just that they had a great deal of trouble finding and hitting the right targets. True, seeing the impeller signature of a target really was technological child's play in many ways. Unfortunately, impeller-drive starships were extremely maneuverable. 
Their wedges sharply limited the vulnerable aspects from which they could be successfully attacked, and they mounted both active and passive defenses designed to make the task of any attack missile seekers as unsimple as possible. Given the way in which a missile's own impeller wedge narrowed its onboard seeker's field of view, one RMN training manual likened it to steering an air car while looking at the outside world through a soda straw. The small size of its effective target, the narrow gap between the impeller wedge's roof and floor, the decoys and electronic warfare systems designed to defeat those seekers, and the target's ability to rapidly roll ship in order to interpose its own impeller wedge, the probability of a hit by any single missile had always been low. Higher for laser heads than for contact weapons, but still low. And prior to the introduction of the modern missile pod, salvo densities had also been low, which had made it essential to find a way to increase that probability. The solution had been to turn every salvo into a network of dispersed sensor platforms, Any given missile might not see the target very well, if at all, during an attack run, especially when coming in on a profile designed to make it as difficult as possible for that target's active defenses to intercept it. But when all the seekers aboard every missile in the attack reported what they could see to the ship which had launched them, the data could be collated, combined, and analyzed. A far better tactical picture could be assembled. Enemy electronic warfare tactics could be mapped and allowed for, Probable decoys could be identified and excluded from the targeting cues. The other side's evasion maneuvers could be plugged in, tracked, and projected, and refined instructions could be sent back, not simply to the missiles which had supplied the data, but to every other missile in the salvo. Not only did that increase accuracy against assigned targets, but it permitted tactical officers to adjust targeting cues on the fly, redirecting missiles as their original targets were crippled or destroyed or as newer, higher-value targets were discovered. As the range increased, transmission lag set in and grew steadily worse until it reached the point at which new instructions from the firing ship were inevitably out of date and actually began degrading its missile's accuracy, at which point the links were cut and each missile reverted to onboard control. And that was TF-1027's problem. Missiles attacking targets 36 million kilometers from their launch platforms were far beyond the effective control range of light-speed systems. Admiral Isotalo had no choice but to rely on her bird's internal seekers and targeting AI, and that AI had always been rudimentary because it was designed to work in tandem with shipboard direction. That was what truly made Apollo so lethal, although the SLN as yet had no clue of just how true that was. The Mark 23E control missiles could accept shipboard telemetry at 64 times the range light speed telemetry made possible, but the Echoes had also been designed specifically for use beyond even Apollo's shipboard control range, with every control missile in the salvo talking to every other control missile and acting as an individual processing node for the data even when relay to and through the mothership was unavailable. Its autonomous accuracy was no more than 30% or so of its accuracy under tight shipboard control. But that 30% was many times more accurate than any current generation Solarian missile could achieve. Sir Martin Lessam's Mark 16s weren't Apollo capable, and neither were his cruisers. But the Ghost Rider platform's FTL links cut the telemetry loop in half. They could see better than any missile's sensors. They could report what they saw at FTL speeds, just as they were doing now on the massive incoming Solarian salvo, and that meant TG-47.3's telemetry lasers could continue to update far longer than its Solarian opponents. 
Despite that, he chose not to waste any of his fire on Isotalo's ships just yet. His opponent had a hell of a lot more missile pods than he did. In fact, he was pretty sure the Sali COs saw this salvo as a test, a way to get a better read on his defensive capabilities, rather than a full-blooded attempt to destroy his ships. Lessam couldn't keep him from doing that, but he wasn't prepared to waste any of his own ammunition on targets that could disappear into hyper before his fire ever reached them. And under the circumstances, he had no objection to showing the Sollies that they'd have to get a lot closer before their fire posed any realistic threat to his command. His cruisers and destroyers mounted a total of 520 counter-missile launchers and 672 point defense clusters, and range from rest for the Royal Manticoran Navy's Mark 31 counter-missile was 3,585,556 kilometers. The first of Lessam's CMs went out 205 seconds after Isotalo's launch, one second after the cataphract's second-stage impellers lit off. A second wave of Mark 31s launched 10 seconds after that. A third launched 10 seconds after that, then a fourth. The fifth and final wave of countermissiles launched 40 seconds after the first, 35 seconds before the cataphracts could reach attack range. And then, with 2,080 Mark 31s headed downrange, every one of TG-47.3's units rolled ship, turning up on their sides relative to TF-1027 to present only the bellies of their impeller wedges to the enemy. Jane Isotalo's jaw clenched as she saw the incredible waves of countermissiles lashing outward from the mantis. Should have expected it, she told herself harshly. If the bastards routinely throw around missile salvos of their own this size, they've got to have been working on defensive measures too. Damn it, you knew that going in. Indeed she had, and she and Romalis and Rosiak had done their damnedest to allow for it. But their worst case estimates hadn't visualized something like this. No Solarian ship mounted that many CM tubes per ton of displacement, and the bastards were actually launching counter-missiles from both broadsides simultaneously. No Solarian ship could have done that either. Nor were counter-missiles all those ships had launched. Dazzlers in five seconds, sir, Commander Constanta Salas, Kruron 912's electronic warfare officer announced, and Lessam nodded. The Dazzlers had been originally devised as a penetration aid, designed to knock down and blind the sensors feeding a target's defensive fire control with massive spikes of electromagnetic and gravitic interference. They were especially effective against countermissiles, which relied on their ability to home in on the impeller signatures of their targets because countermissiles were designed to be produced in the largest possible numbers, and the fact that they didn't need sophisticated seekers helped hold the price down. Nothing in the galaxy was more glaringly obvious than the impeller signature of a missile accelerating at 98,000 gravities, after all. Spotting one of them was rather like trying to see a million candle power searchlight in a darkened room. Only a blind man could have missed it. But that was what the Dazzler produced. Blind men. The countermissile seekers couldn't possibly cope with those enormous bubbles of jamming. That meant they lost lock on their targets, and if it was timed correctly, both they and their targets were moving too rapidly for them to reacquire after the Dazzler's pulse. Even if they reacquired something, their onboard electronic brains were seldom up to the task of reacquiring the proper something without guidance from their human masters. That was what the Dazzler had been designed to do, but as the fleet's missile officers played around with it, they'd quickly realized it had another function.
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an arbitrage of a risk contract on a futures option on a reverse mortgage for the entire solar system. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for DJ Butler, author of In the Palace of Shadow and Joy. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 